0: fewer and fewer people are willing to publicly make a declaration declaring their belief in God. Institutions and companies are extremely uh, brand conscious, they're brand aware, they're brand protective, and so they only associate with positively trending topics, groups, segments of their customer base. But Do you know which very conservative set of companies are willing to declare boldly before everyone their deep, ongoing respect and awe for God? Insurance companies, right? Insurance companies believe in God, or at least they believe in acts of God. Uh, you, You can't have acts of God without... A God, so by acts of God, they of course mean the powerful and unforeseen disasters. And that kind of disaster attachment to God is fairly culturally pervasive. Along a similar line, when you start to say something has uh, really gone wrong, you describe um, a, a big, big problem, you, you say it's of biblical proportions. And that's a reference to the scale The natural disaster, the cataclysmic event so vast that it draws comparisons to biblical accounts like the devastation of the plagues of Egypt in Exodus chapter 7 to 11. Today we're uh, discovering more things I've heard. Phrases, images, idioms lifted from Scripture informing our lives, surrounding our lives. And the usage of these no longer requires a belief in God. But it does remind us that our culture has been heavily influenced by Scripture and, at one time, the pursuit of Jesus. Because of that, it's further a cautionary tale to our culture, but to ourselves as well, of a drift in our culture from that earnest pursuit of Jesus. The shift from submission to our Heavenly Father, the God of the Bible, to our (laughs) evolution, Elevation and newfound devotion to the gods of ourselves, uh, of our our opinions and our preferences. The substitution of the God of creation with the idols or the gods created by us. Today we're going to move quickly through a number of references for you. And then we're going to end up with a, a couple in a little bit greater detail. And then a story that has events in it with truly epic, biblical proportions. So, when, when you have experienced extended hard times or illness, things have been very, very bad, we would say you are nothing but skin and bones. And this comes from Job. It's a, shoot, it's a really packed verse with images. Job 19.20, he's nothing but skin and bones and has just escaped by the skin of his teeth. Great images from Scripture. Now, things are running smoothly except for that little fly in the ointment. comes from Ecclesiastes. When we refer to someone or something as the fly in the ointment, it means that they are ruining everything. Everything was fine, except for this one little fly in the ointment. Words that you would use to describe something desired but not permitted. In our culture now, because it's not permitted, oh, that's great. Forbidden fruit. We want what we can't have. Ashes to ashes, dust to dust, most commonly said at funerals. It's a reference to the cycle of life, the reality laid out at the beginning, in the beginning from Genesis. There's just so many of these cultural references that that surround us in everyday life, this pervasive nature that has impacted the way we think and the way we see, the way we describe our life. So here we go. Did you know that all of these came from Scripture? Maybe this one for sure. Fire and brimstone. That's a famous one. An eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth, which used to be a really great regulation to prevent over Bite the dust. Before Eddie Mercury and Queen, it came from Scripture. Wit's end. A house divided against itself cannot stand. The blind leading the blind. Wolves in sheep's clothing. All of these lifted from Scripture, that we use to describe what's going on in our world. Here's another one, scapegoat. Have you heard that? The concept first appears in Leviticus. It's when a goat is designated to be sent off into the desert to carry away the sins of the community. It's part of the ceremonies of the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. We typically celebrate that in late September. It begins in Exodus at the original tabernacle. Once a year on Yom Kippur, the Gadol sacrifices a bull to atone for the sins that he committed unintentionally throughout the year. That's the way the process starts. And after that, he takes two goats and presents them at the door of the tabernacle. And the tabernacle is the tent of meeting. It's the special tent that God himself gave description for, dimensions for, and said, build this. So two goats were chosen randomly by lot. One to be for Yahweh, God, was to be sacrificed, a blood sacrifice. And the other was to be the scapegoat, to be sent away out into the wilderness. So the blood of the slain goat was taken into the Holy of Holies beyond the veil. Once a year, the high priest can go in there. And they take that blood and they sprinkle it on what is called the mercy seat which was the lid, uh, the the top part, the covering of the Ark of the Covenant. Later, as the ceremonies continue of the same day, the high priest confessed all of the intentional sins. And and he confesses all of them from all of the Israelites to God, and he places them figuratively on the head of the other goat. Puts his hands on and places those sins there, the scapegoat who would symbolically then take them away. In Christianity, this process prefigures or provides the model for, foreshadows the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. Since the second goat was sent away to perish, the word scapegoat has developed to indicate a person who was blamed and punished for the actions of others. We normally see this process as letting others off by punishing the one, let off the punishment that we deserve because Jesus became our God-given scapegoat. Pride comes before a fall. This is a principle wherein having too much pride or confidence causes a blindness that leads to foolish mistakes. And boy, oh boy, do I have a good story for that. And It's going to come through another phrase Super famous, I'm sure that you have all heard it before. The writing is on the wall. This has come to be an idiom that we use in our culture for uh, describing imminent peril peril, or uh, approaching, fast approaching, unavoidable danger. There's no way out of this one. It's coming no matter what we do. So we start with this, the super great. Mega famous, internationally known, feared and respected king, Nebuchadnezzar, leader of the empire of Babylon, and he dies. <coughs> Babylonian influence in that part of the world continues, but it begins to wane. There's a new big dog in the world, and that is the Persian empire under Cyrus the Great. Now, the Babylonian kingdom is waning, but it's still around. It's still functioning. It's still a big force, and it's ruled now by two men. The grandson of King Nebuchadnezzar on his daughter's side, and his name is Belshazzar, and Belshazzar's dad. They were co-regents. Belshazzar was ruling the city of Babylon and Nabonidus. His father, who was King Nebuchadnezzar's son-in-law, just to figure out the family tree there, is off leading the war. So he's at war leading the battle against the Persians, and Honestly, that is not going well. Time after time after time, Nabonidus is defeated by the Persians. He eventually says, forget it, surrenders his army, and he flees to the hills. Persian army moves on to Babylon, surrounds the city. Belshazzar has no idea what's happened to Nabonidus. And the city of Babylon, which he is in, is suddenly and without warning, surrounded by the mighty Persian Empire. Cyrus the Great has come for the city. But Belshazzar believed that the city is impregnable. He thought that no one could ever get in over the walls or through the walls or under the walls. Knowing that the city is now surrounded, it's now cut off from any help by Cyrus the Great and the Persian army, Belshazzar, arrogantly, pride will come before a fall, decides it's time to throw a banquet. So he throws a party and he dedicates the whole thing to Marduk. Marduk was the Babylonian god. But wait, there's still more. It's not just a party to celebrate the beginning of a siege. Who celebrates the beginning of a siege when you're in it? The city surrendered, but the pride swells in him back even over time. And so Nebuchadnezzar was a powerful guy, and he had made himself a God collection. Anytime he conquered a city or a nation, he would take the idol that represented the God of that city or that nation, and he would haul it back to Babylon, make it part of his defeated God's collection, a little theme park that he had. He had been very powerful, and he had been very successful. And he had so many idols (coughs) from so many places all hanging out in his castle. So at this party, Belshazzar brings out the statue of Marduk, sets it in the middle of the banquet hall, and then has his people bring out all these other statues, all the other idols that represent all the other gods of all the other conquered people. And they place them around Marduk in a semicircle. As a reflection to the fact that our God, Marduk, can protect us from any city and from any nation. Challenge was this. When Nebuchadnezzar, many, many, many years ago, before this, went into the city of Jerusalem, he went into the temple where the Jews worshipped the representation of the Jewish God. But what did he find? No idol. Because the Jews don't worship any idol. The Ten Commandments are entirely clear and they forbid Jews from worshiping any image. Remember, this has come up before, right? Came up with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego with Nebuchadnezzar. Remember, we will not bow down, O king. Remember that? Happened to Daniel too. And he wouldn't pray to anyone but Jehovah. And he got sent to the lions for that one. The Jews had no statues or images of their God. And this was just unheard of. No one knows what to do with that. They worshiped the invisible God. So the Babylonians did the next best thing. So how how to make do when stealing from another nation? They stole what they could from the temple as a reflection of the fact that they had conquered the nation and defeated the Jewish God. So they pulled all that stolen stuff into the collection, the God collection, the conquered God's collection. So when Belshazzar has his banquet, just to revel in the fact that he is a king and no one can ever take his city, he now brings out the gold and the silver goblets that have been stolen from the Jewish temple as a symbol of the fact that the Jewish God is now out of business. He begins to use those goblets in the party. And right in the middle of this party, with the hooting and the hollering, imagine this, in the middle of this giant city, surrounded by these awesome, powerful, well-designed walls, no one can ever get over, no one can ever get through, no one can ever get under. Belshazzar, in his arrogance, is throwing this giant party. It's a siege party, spit in the face of the Persians just outside his walls, and all of the conquered nations, we got it all, baby doll, we are Babylon. But suddenly there's a noise. And they look around. It's like, look, no, 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 not there, over here. The plaster is fallen off the wall. And as they pay closer attention, it's as if there's a finger writing letters in the plaster on the wall. Music stops. DJs pulls the record right off. Whee! The party stops. The drinks go down. All eyes are now up on the wall. Belshazzar, so afraid, his knees, knees give out. And so he calls all of his magicians because nobody could read what was being written on the plaster on the wall. All of these miz- Magicians roll in, and he offers them all kinds of things. I got stuff for you, don't worry. Up to, I'll make you the third most powerful person over the entire kingdom. All the magicians just stared up at that wall, this writing, and no one can read it. Then Belshazzar's wife, that's Nebuchadnezzar's granddaughter, remembers Daniel. Daniel. So she sends for Daniel. Daniel at this time is probably about 70 years old. He spent his entire life from the time that he was a teenager kidnapped till he is 70 years old working for the kings of Babylon. He looks up at the wall and he looks at Belshazzar in all of his arrogance and now in all of his fear. Here's what happens next. You know what? You should really read your Bible because it's all in there, right? Just fantastic, awesome stuff. Daniel chapter five, starting at verse 17. Then Daniel answered the king, you may keep your gifts for yourself, all right? Give your rewards to someone who cares, someone else. Nevertheless, I will read the writing for for the king and tell you what it means. Verse 18, your majesty, The Most High God gave your father, now actually it's your grandfather, but they use those terms um, interchangeably to describe relationship. Nebuchadnezzar, he gave him sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendor. Pause. Belshazzar, my God, the God loaned your grandfather, some of his greatness and his splendor. Verse 20. But when his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, he was deposed from his royal throne and he was stripped from his glory. 21. He was driven away from people and given the mind of an animal. He lived with the wild donkeys and ate grass like the ox. And his body was drenched with the dew of heaven. Until until he acknowledged that the Most High God is sovereign over all the kingdoms on earth and sets over them anyone he wishes. Belshazzar, your grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar was a great king. And he grew through a very painful, humbling process so that he would understand that his power was on loan from the king of kings. But you, Belshazzar, his son, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all of this. In other words, the story about what happened, Nebuchadnezzar had circulated. It was common knowledge. Once he came back to his senses, he came back to his senses, he took over the throne, he was reigning again. he got that opportunity given back to him in Babylon. He told his story. He didn't hide it. It wasn't a secret. This is a story that his children knew. This was a story that his grandchildren knew. You knew all this, 23. Instead, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You had the goblets from his temple brought to you, and you and your nobles, your wives, and your concubines drank wine from them. You praise the gods of silver and gold and bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand. So take a snapshot of this, right? Think about what's going on. Look around the room a little bit. Belshazzar has brought out his statue of Marduk, which is made of some kind of stone. Brought it right into the center of his banquet. And Daniel, standing there, talking to the king, everybody's listening in. There's all these statues that are laid out in front of Marduk. All the other gods, all the other idols from all the other vanquished nations. And he's pointing out these gods as he goes along. He's pointing to a silver one there. There's a gold one over there, and there's a bronze one, an iron one, a wood one, and that stone one. You're acting like all of these gods are something. Back into 23. But they cannot see or hear or understand. But you did not honor the God who holds in his hands your life and all your ways. 24. Therefore, he sent the hand that wrote the inscription. And you could hear a pin drop. 25. This is the inscription that was written. Mene, mene, tekel, parsim. 26. Here's what those words mean. Mene... God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. O oh, King Belshazzar, your days are numbered. No matter how big in your britches you feel, remember this, your days are limited. Your days are controlled by someone outside of yourself. You are going to die. 27, tackle. You have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. You are accountable. You have been weighed. You have been judged. You are being held to account. There is someone greater than you who will hold you accountable. Now, you must give an account. 28, Paris. Your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Your influence is temporary. But wait, there's still more. A week or so ago, before the Persians surrounded the city, a week or so before Belshazzar decides it's time to throw this party, a week or so before Cyrus the Great had his army redirect the river Euphrates into a swamp. The river Euphrates ran right into the city of Babylon. It's where they got all their water from. The river ran under the wall. They built the wall over the river on two sides. The Persians redirected the river, and for the past few days, the level of the river had been slowly imperceptibly dropping. Cyrus and his army, they had timed it perfectly so that as the sun set, the Euphrates river began to dip below the lowest point of the walls of Babylon. And as they're having this party, nothing can go wrong. And Daniel's making this proclamation. At that moment, the Persian army is slipping into Babylon. The city was taken that night, and that night, Belshazzar was executed because the Most High God is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and He sets over them anyone He wishes. And that means for, for us, for us people in Canada, that every single day that we have is a stewardship. No matter how much power, no matter how much prestige, no matter how many possessions, it's a stewardship. That means there's so many variables that you you have no control over that we should never, ever, ever get all puffed up and arrogant (coughs) over any of it. It has just been placed in our hands. We are managing something that we did not create and we will not hold on to forever because it's all temporary. Just for now. Maybe the most important one of all, and the one that we are most likely to forget in the midst of it when, when all kinds of things are going on is that we are accountable. One day, we, you and me, we will all give an account of how we managed our prestige, how we managed our power and how we managed our possessions. Do you know how we know that we are accountable? Because the Most High God is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth, and He sets over them anyone He wishes. And in this next election season, perhaps fast approaching, has been, will be filled with controversy and unkindness. Know that our King remains in control. You need not fear. Imagine the worst possible outcome. God can use you in this time to make a difference. Just like he used Daniel. Daniel never wanted to go to Babylon. He was kidnapped. He never wanted a Babylonian king. He didn't agree with a Babylonian king. But he was effective for the kingdom of God in the midst of it all. Are you being effective now? Will you be effective for God after our next election? We report second to Canada and first to the kingdom of heaven because heaven rules. Here's what else this means to you. When and where you hold influence, when you rightly sense that you've got it going on, in that moment, When your pride rises up and it starts to reach for that remote control of your life, you say, no way. Pride, you are wrong and I know that you lie. This is a stewardship. This is temporary. I am accountable for the whole thing. Pride. I mean, did you miss that key phrase, pride? The most high God is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth. And sets over them anyone he wishes. So I'm gonna choose to be grateful, but I'm not going to be arrogant. Kind Father, thank you for your intervention. Thank you for your action in our lives throughout history, but in in our lives specifically, just in, in our short window. Remind us that what we have has been given as a gift and given with a point, given with a purpose, never just for us. And that's why we speak so much about mission, trying to agree with you, trying to follow what it is that you are leading us into, Where you go is where we want to follow, and we want to take what we have, our power, our prestige, and our possessions, we want to take those, and we want to put them to work in your mission, God. So give us direction, I pray. Bring us conviction that we will turn our hearts back towards you. Help us to find in that place your forgiveness, your your welcoming reception as we come back admitting, humbling ourselves, admitting that we have chosen unwisely at times. We have behaved selfishly. We have behaved arrogantly. We have concerned ourselves more with ourselves than with those around us. Forgive us for what we have done unintentionally. Forgive us for what we have done intentionally. Transform our hearts by the renewing of our minds. Lead us on your path. Put us to work in your mission, that we can take where we are with all that we have, whether we think it's a little or a lot, and apply it to your work to benefit those around us, to benefit your world, to make it appear like your kingdom is coming. Help us to live in that place where we just delight in and display the upside-down kingdom of God, making it come to life for someone who has never seen it, can't believe it, can't be true. Bring it to life in and through us, we pray. Through us individually, through us working together as into one, through us working together as the church of Christ throughout the world. Be glorified in our lives. And in our world, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.